You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. chapter verses 1 through 44. So if you want, you can take a moment to turn there with me. There are Bibles in your pews. Um, And please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, that is 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 1 through 44. Now the wife of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. 
And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take, away, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply." And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha came to Gilgal, and there was, where there was a famine in the land. And as the son of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine gathered from, from it, his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some, of the, some for the men to eat. But when they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it in the pot and said, Pour out for some of the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Balshalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're looking at the 
stories of uh, the prophets Elijah and then Elisha. And uh, Elijah came first. Uh, he's gone now. And now uh, we've moved into um, his protege, Elisha. And uh, they both ministered in Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And um, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they had fallen into dark times. And uh, false worship had entered into uh, the religion of Israel. And this God, this God named Baal, or some people call him Baal, God of fertility, the God of uh, supposedly would bring life and uh, uh, would bring power to Israel, would bring forth crops and so forth. People had started worshiping that God. Um, and in fact, that God uh, only brought death. It says in verse 1, uh, my husband is dead. In verse 20, the child is dead. Even in verse 40, there's death in the pot, whatever that means, the stew or something like that. Is, death has come into it. But you see that consistently in these stories. Last week, we saw that uh, because of the, the religion of Baal, uh, the whole, at a geopolitical level, uh, they had begun to attack and invade and colonize and uh, just all this aggression was bringing forth death all driven by uh, the politics of Baal. And, uh, and so you see uh, at that large level kind of death spreading through Israel, uh, even uh, into Moab, a neighboring country. But in this chapter, uh, we see these four stories of hope. So these little, uh, and, and, and you see that in the ministry of Elisha, these little uh, you know, points of light um, shining in the darkness. And in this case, there are four different stories. Uh, there are these stories, these little stories of life, little buds of life coming up uh, out of darkness. And um, last week we saw that there was this river that Elisha called this river into being out of nowhere, right in the middle of the desert when God's army and these animals were thirsty and they, they, they were about to die of thirst. And God just brings forth a river in the middle of a desert. And uh, that's kind of what we see again here. In the middle of a barren wilderness, this geyser of life is, is coming up out of the ground. We see that with the multiplication of food. Uh, we see that with the multiplication of oil. Uh, we see that with this pot of stew being made uh, healthy again. But mostly we see that in uh, the raising of this child. And there are not many examples in the Old Testament of people being raised up from the dead who had died and come back to life. This is one of uh, just two. The first one was done by Elijah. So um, this is a very important story in the in the movement of Israel, this is, a, this is a breakthrough in Israel's history, these, these moments where we see that death is not the end. In fact, even human death is not the end. So I want to look at, I want to end with that story, even though it doesn't come last, but it's the climactic point in the narrative, is the, the raising of the Shunammite's uh, child. And before I look at that, I want to look at this first story of a widow. Interesting, these two women that are very different. The first one is impoverished, her husband's died. Um, her children are about to be brought into slavery. And the second one, the Shunammite, is very wealthy. Uh, she's got a husband. She has no child. The first one is definitely part of the community of uh, Elisha and this kind of renewal movement, this revival in Israel. The second one is not a part of that renewal movement. She's outside of the, the church, so to speak. But she has this kind of faith. So these two different women, and... Um, I was just listening to a podcast about the way that the Old Testament honors women in, in, in subtle ways. But uh, if you ever think that the Old Testament is uh, misogynist in some way or uh, opposed to women, you've got to read more of ancient Near Eastern literature of this same time because it's not at all. It actually raises up women quite a bit. And uh, we see that in this story with these two women. In fact, the prophets, both Elijah and Elisha, 
uh, they resonate with the suffering of women in several of these stories. And uh, in, in, the, in the literature of this time, you would have only stories about like heroes and gods and demigods and great conquering kings and warriors. You would never have stories like these. So it's, it's a miracle that even we have these two stories of this woman uh, who's the widow, whose children are in, threatened to be put into slavery, and then this Shunammite. So only these two stories. Um, first of all, the, the first one, the much shorter story, and I'll spend less time with this, but there's this woman. We don't get a lot of background about her, but she is a young wife of a prophet that is part of the, this house church movement. I'll call it a house church movement. These little, this like, these little uh, communities of Yahweh that are popping up in the middle of the collapse of religion in Israel. And by the way, in America right now, 40 million people have left the church since the year 2000. There's a book called The Great Dechurching of America. Um, but I think in this time, and a lot of that happened through COVID, but now in this time in 2023, uh, I and many of my fellow pastors, we talk about this. We see a lot of signs of new life, a lot of growth in churches, a lot of people out there who are being brought back in. Uh, there, is, there is revival happening in America today, and that's kind of what's going on here, this little, um, these little pockets of renewal. So here's this one woman in verse 1. She says to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and a creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And because the law of God has been abandoned, God gave Israel a law called the Torah, and the Torah said that slavery uh, has to be very much circumscribed, um, that there are all these limits they put on slavery, and be, not because God uh, is okay with it, but because he's, he wants to uh, limit it, and, uh, and he doesn't totally outlaw it in the Old Testament, but he does uh, circumscribe it and give rules um, to what is not allowed, and this is certainly not allowed. So because the Torah has been abandoned, um, and this is a different kind of slavery. This is the kind of slavery where someone is in debt, and they can't pay their debt, and they're put into slavery, or they're captured in war. This is not the same kind of chattel slavery we had in America. But even in this case, uh, this is not something God likes. Yahweh does not, does not approve of this at all. This is, a, this is an example of Baal and his aggression and rapacious nature of, of snatching these children from this woman who's in debt and bringing them, taking her out of her, her home, and they would have supported her, and now she would be left for dead, and this creditor is taking these children away. So Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Which is strange. Jesus did this too. But you would think that, she, that he would know exactly what to do. I mean, the widows just told him that her husband's dead, and the creditors come to take the children away into slavery. Obviously, she's asking for him to protect that from happening. But uh, he asks, what, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants her to say it. And Jesus did that a lot, too. There would be a leper. He'd say, what do you want me to do for you? A blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants them to say it, to take part in it. In fact, uh, Elisha draws her deeper into the miracle because he says, well, tell me what you have in your house. It's a needs assessment. He's asking her to play a part, um, to have some form of agency in this miracle. So he wants her uh, to be involved. And not only her, he wants the whole community to be involved. Because she says, nothing but a single jar of oil. So there's a little bit of, a uh, tiny bit of oil in a jar, maybe as big as these communion cups, a little tiny uh, bit of oil. Other than that, they have nothing at all. They're destitute. So Elisha kind of focuses her imagination in on that little jar of oil. 
And then he kind of blows her mind. He expands her imagination from scarcity to abundance. And he says, um, verse 3, go and borrow as many vessels as your neighbors will give you. So he is drawing the whole community into this miracle. They're going to play their part. And um, you can imagine that she hesitantly starts to um, get her little jar of oil, and, she, and the neighbors are now in a line, right, in the whole community, this whole church. All these people lined up with these little different-sized vessels for their oil. Um, they don't have any oil in them. They're just empty vessels. So all these neighbors are lined up. She's got her little jar of oil, and she starts to turn it over. You know, thinking that within like 20 seconds, it'll all be gone. But it just keeps coming. And the assembly line of neighbors keeps growing. And they keep bringing their pots in front of that little jar of oil. And then they will move away. And the next one will put their pot in front. And they just keep filling, each one filling up higher and higher and higher. And there's so much oil in all of these vessels. I mean, I don't know how many there were. But uh, all the neighbors come and bring the, it's a beautiful miracle. Eventually you have, you know, maybe a hundred people standing around her, each with their jar full of oil. And this is olive oil, very valuable. And so then with all of these jars of oil, they take it to the creditor and they say, here's your money. And the children are set free. Uh, And she pays her debt because God brings so much life. And, um, you know, the question that I think it raises for us is um, we often have a mindset of scarcity and that there's a very limited amount of stuff out there and that, um, you know, there's, it's kind of a zero-sum game. So the, mo- the more that uh, I have, the, more, the less you have. Um, that's what zero-sum game means, that there's a, a fixed amount in this pie chart and we get to split it up. And so if I have more, you have less. And if you have more, I have less. And uh, the more I give, the less I have. That's the way we think of the universe operating. And Elisha is telling her to expand your imagination about the way abundance works, that we don't live in a world of scarcity. You know, what if the universe is actually um, penetrable by a divine being who made the universe? What if you could have um, this jar of oil turned over and the, there's, there's just this multiplication of the cells of olive oil that just keep, you would look at it and it would just be the small amount, but it just keeps coming out of that small amount. I mean, what if that was the world we actually lived in and not this closed system, not this two-dimensional system where you have an X amount of income, this is, the, this is my monthly paycheck, and I take out Y amount of rent and then Z amount of debt and then there's the bills and the groceries and the end we have this much left. That's the way we think. We think in terms of this closed system universe. But the reality is that the universe is not two-dimensional. Uh, it's It's three-dimensional. It's not simply physical. It's spiritual. There's a lot more to the universe than than you can see. I heard this uh, theologian this week say that there are three heavens. Uh, The first heaven is the one that you can see in the sky. And this is in the Hebrew mind. The biblical world, there are three heavens. The first heaven is the sky, the atmosphere of the earth. The second heavens is the whole cosmos, all the galaxies, uh, the entire cosmos, which dwarfs the first heaven, obviously. So much bigger. And uh, the ancient Israelites knew this. They knew that there was this heavens and there was another heavens beyond that. And the third heavens were a heavens even bigger than the first two that dwarfed them as much as the second one dwarfs the first one. So there is this invisible realm that is so much bigger than our little tiny universe that it dwarfs it like the, the universe dwarfs our little tiny planet. 
And if we live in that world, the three-tiered heavens world, then um, there's a lot more out there than we think. Because our, uh, not only is our planet tiny, our whole cosmos is tiny. And there are creatures out there, there is a creator out there uh, that can bring life. There were a really difficult financial time uh, during COVID where I was talking to my wife and we were just, uh, I remember coming back from a DMV appointment and um, we were just talking about how the, there's, the money's just not there. Like we were thinking, uh, how are we gonna keep supporting like missionaries or people we support in RUF or pastor friends uh, where we have like these tuition bills, we had a sewage line break, a water heater broke, car broke, uh, air conditioning unit broke, and we looked at all this stuff and it did not, it did not add up at all. And so like, how can we write a check for someone uh, who's a missionary when uh, we don't even feel like we are you know, financially responsible with the bills we have? And I remember my stomach literally got tight and uh, kind of heat like, went through my shoulder. And I got kind of angry at God. Like, why, should I, why are you asking me to give when you've put so much on my plate? And um, I don't even know exactly what we decided to do, but I do know that we worship a God um, of abundance who sets debtors free. Uh, these kids were destined for slavery, and he set them free. And Paul calls this God uh, the God who uh, brings life from the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist, like more olive oil or more money in the Milner's uh, checkbook because that way they can support missionaries and, uh, and, and, and for you as well. Like where are you tempted to uh, stop being generous because you have this zero-sum game, this closed system universe? Um, that's not the kingdom economy. The economy of the kingdom of God is an economy of abundance and not scarcity because the creator of all money, of all wealth, is on your side if you believe in him and he supplies our needs. So that's the widow, which is a threat of death because she had almost nothing and her children were about to be taken from her. So there was a threat of death there in the first story. Now in the second story, it's not a threat of death. It is death. So this is worst case scenario. And uh, it's a really tragic story. It begins in verse eight, where Elisha is passing through this village called Shunem. And in that village, of Shunem, there's this wealthy woman, verse 8, and that woman gives him food. So I don't think she's a part of the church community, but I think that she takes care of uh, Elisha because there's something that she knows, she's very wise, and she knows something about the God of Israel. This will be called a God-fearer in the Old Testament, somebody who fears God but is not necessarily a devout Jew. So she says to her husband in verse 9, I know that this is a holy man of God, which shows that uh, she's a God-fearer. She has this sense of, um, although she herself was probably not raised in the Jewish tradition, um, she knew that there was, this, there was this God out there, and she knew something about this God, this one creator God, not the, God, not the pagan uh, multi-polytheism, you know, um, Baal and Shemash and Molech and all these different gods. She knew there was one God, one creator God. And she knows enough about that God, and then in verse 10, she prepares this little kind of temple for Elisha in her house. So her husband 
she and her husband decide they're going to make a room in her, her house entirely for Elisha and his, his people, his pastors. Verse 10, prepare a room for him on the roof uh, with a bed, a table, a chair, and a menorah, literally in Hebrew, a menorah. And these are the, this is the furniture of the temple of God. So if you know about the Jewish temple, you know that these pieces of furniture are in the temple. And therefore, this is kind of like this uh, mobile temple, because the real temple's down in Jerusalem. This is not the real temple, but this is a mobile temple where the living presence of Yahweh is there, like the Holy of Holies is there. So this woman has created like this little mini temple where Elisha dwells in her house, kind of like she's made an Airbnb where the room is entirely dedicated to Elisha and his fellow prophets, including this person named Gehazi, who will appear next week and the week after, and he's kind of a fool. One of the commentaries actually compared him to Dwight Schrute, you know, in the office, which I thought was perfect, the assistant to the man of God. You know, definitely not the assistant man of God because uh, he is clueless. Uh, because in verse 14, Gehazi um, responds to Elisha in this way. Elisha says, uh, what should we give her you know, for doing this nice thing for us, for creating this Airbnb? Maybe we should give her flowers or chocolate. And then Gehazi says, well, you know, she doesn't have a son. There's always that. And then Elisha like completely runs with that idea and comes to her and says about this next time, next year, this is verse 15, you will embrace, and that's an emotional word for a woman who is probably her whole life, longed for a child. You will embrace a son. And you might think she would rejoice at that point. Uh, that's what you would expect to happen in a story. But that's not how humans work. And the author of this story knows that's not how humans work. And so in verse 16, she says, No, my Lord, do not lie to your servant. Do not play with my heart. This is too good to be true. This is what I've always wanted. I do not want you to get my hopes up if it's not going to happen. Such a realistic depiction of a human heart. But, you know, her scarcity mindset, which is, would be mine as well, but her mindset does not in any way limit God's ability to bless her. It does not tie God's hands. It's not like God says, I wish we could do a miracle, but she doesn't believe. You know, that's not the way Jesus acted. It's not like he, is, it's not like, uh, he couldn't do certain things because people um, didn't have enough faith. Verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son about that time, the following spring, and she was probably still in utter disbelief and probably woke up every morning and could not believe it was true. So she has this son, and a lot of Christian movies would end right there. You know, a lot of Christian novels would end right there, and it would be a storybook story, and it would be happily ever after. But this, the Bible always lingers in the pit of despair. You know, the Bible does not uh, try to sweep things under the rug. It, uh, it is, does not tie things up in a nice little bow. It never does that because the Bible is telling the truth about our world. And so, verse 18 says, and these things happen, as we all know. One day the child ran to his father among the reapers and said, oh, my head, my head. Somebody thought it might be an aneurysm uh, that I was talking to. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And then um, one of the more 
just devastating details in the Bible. I mean, didn't have to say this. Could have just said the child died, but it says in verse 19, the child sat on her lap till noon. You can imagine them clinging to each other, and then he died. And the Bible is penetrating down to the depths of the pain there. And it's saying, this is, this is life. Life is like that. That happens. And we know that. And healing happens when you actually can name that. We can actually say that happened to me. And a good counselor knows that. You know, you have to talk about what happened. And that's why the Bible does this kind of thing. Is it talks about what really happens in life. And uh, what, what Hamas did and what is happening in Gaza right now, the violence, the images, that's really happening. And it doesn't do any good to do like that or to put your head in the sand like an ostrich. Uh, we have to say what's happening. This is the world we live in. And so um, it doesn't help to just turn on a football game and to try to ignore that or go on social media or shop or whatever we do to ignore these things. Eat more. Um, this is real. The world is dark and bleak, and people die. And uh, God gives us these miracles, and then they go away. This stuff really happens. The Bible acknowledges that. But the good news is that the spade does not hit rock bottom with death. And that's where the Bible has this other insight. You know, the first insight of the Bible is this world is a dark place haunted by death, and let's stop pretending that you're going to not die. You know, no one gets out of life alive. We're all going to die. Let's not pretend. But the spade does not hit rock bottom there. There's something below that. There's something beneath that that's bigger than death. And that is eternal life. And that is the reality. That even if our money runs out, even if we don't have any oil, even if someone dies, that is not the end of the story. And she knows that. I don't know how this woman knows that, but she knows that. And so she just flies to Mount Carmel, where she knows that that's where Elijah lives. She flies up to Mount Carmel, goes up to the top of the mountain. She doesn't even tell her husband, notice that she will not reveal this to him, because this is something so deep that she can only talk to God about it. And Elisha basically stands in the place of God. That's why he keeps being called the man of God, because he's like the, the holy of holies, going back to the temple thing. So she flies to Mount Carmel. She says, urge the donkey to run and do not slacken the pace, verse 19. She is not going to give up. She has got her grip, you know, like a death grip on hope, on God. And when she finds Elisha, she comes up and she grabs a hold of his feet. Just, I just think about like a safety tackling a receiver, just, just dives at him and grabs his feet and says, I'm not, she says, I'm not going to give up on life. That's what faith is. It's uh, it's not giving up, even though it looks like it's over. And her grip is so intense that uh, Gehazi, fool that he is, tries to shoo her away. Like, leave, leave the teacher alone. It's like the disciples when the children came up to Jesus. Leave the teacher alone. But, but I love that uh, the man of God defends her and says, uh, you leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. And... Again, prophets always resonate with suffering, like he does here. Always the defender of the weak. And then she says to him in full bitterness in verse 28, bitter, bitter words, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say do not deceive me? I mean, she is letting him have it. All her pain is like 
The way I said that doesn't even come close to the way she said that. Uh, there's kind of sarcasm in there, bitterness, anger. She was probably wailing. And she is so angry, but she is nevertheless clinging to him as if he's Yahweh. I mean, it's in verse 30, it's kind of like the two are conflated. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. I'm hanging on to you. And again, that's faith. It's clinging on to Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us in our anguish. And she's like beating on the breast of God. She's not going to let him go. That's what faith is. And verse 32, Elisha goes down the mountain with her. I don't know what the whole staff thing is. Nobody knows what the staff on the face. Or I, I don't know what that means. But it's kind of like a preview or maybe it's showing that Gehazi's a fool. But that doesn't work at all. But Elisha comes into her house. He sees the child lying dead on the bed. And again, there's one of those details that's not going to let you, uh, you know, just sweep the pain under the rug. Uh, it's forcing you to go there. Then Elisha went into the room and he shut the door and he prayed. And this is what God said to him. God said, you need to do these, you need to lay on this child's body. And uh, I'm sure Elijah said, are you absolutely sure that's what you want me to do? And verse 34, yes, uh, he lay gently on the child, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hand. Uh, he's like spread eagle over this child. It's a strange image, very strange image. Uh, I, I was one time, it was a terrible thunderstorm. Our dog hates thunderstorms, violently shaking, could not get the dog to stop shaking. Finally, I just lay on top of our little dog, uh, completely lay on top of the dog, and, and just sat there in my breathing and uh, my large, warm, calm body regulated Ricky's breathing and kind of like the fear. And didn't, I just noticed over time the dog, like something about me went into the dog or there was a resonance or something like that. But this is way beyond that, that uh, Elisha, who is like Emmanuel, is placing his whole body like over our suffering. And no, no inch was left exposed. That's the whole point of the mouth on mouth, eyes on eyes, hands on hands. Everything was covered. And, and a good Israelite would never touch a dead body, would not even go near a dead body. Like with a 10-foot pole would not touch a dead body because uh, that would contaminate the Israelite. You don't, you do not, that would make you unclean to touch a dead body. But Elisha just throws himself on top of this child, completely throws himself on top of the child, which is unimaginable. But when, because he is the man of God, because he is the mobile temple and the, and the Holy of Holies is in him, when he touches death, death does not make him unclean. He makes death go away. He makes death vanish. And so in verse 34, it says, he stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. His life, the life of God in the man of God, flew into the child. It moved into the child. And death did not overwhelm Elisha, but Elisha overwhelmed death. Because it is the life of the man of God, who is the Emmanuel, God with us, the one who really came. Uh, the one who was the second person of the Trinity, in the flesh, with us, born in Bethlehem. Uh, his is the one that had the life that, that moved into this child as the, as the child's death flowed into him. And that's the great exchange. 
is that we believe that God actually came to earth and um, took all death into himself. And that way, uh, when he absorbed all death, then he could give eternal life that would never, ever perish, that would never go away, that could never be defeated. He came to offer us that life. And so on, and it, and it happened through his suffering. Uh, the, the way life came to us is through him dying and being destroyed by us on the night he was betrayed. On the night he was betrayed, the night that uh, he was crucified, died and was buried, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, on that night where he was about to die like that child, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that I lay on top of you. This is the life of the world. I am being broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat the bread and drink from the cup, uh, you are proclaiming my death and resurrection till I come again. So this is that mysterious exchange where all of our death flows into him and all of his life flows into us. When we eat this bread and drink from this cup, these are not mere symbols. Um, there is not, it's not literally the body and literally the blood, like physically, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Like, it's definitely not a symbol. There's crazy stuff going on up here that we can't explain. Um, you know, Aquinas couldn't explain it. Luther couldn't explain it. Calvin couldn't explain it. Nobody's able to explain it, but it's here. It's real. It's like radioactivity at this table. And so if you don't believe in these mysteries, um, we certainly don't want you to do something that you don't understand or not comfortable with. Uh, don't partake uh, in this if, if you don't really understand like, who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But on the other hand, I would also say that... Uh, you do not need to have your act together to partake. Like that woman was angry and bitter. And you might be angry and bitter right now. And God wants you to come. He wants you to receive his life. You need it more than ever. That's when you really need it. I mean, you might almost have no faith at all. But you really, really want this to be true. And you're really drawn to this story. And if that's you, then yes, come and partake. He wants to give his life to you. Uh, Father... I pray that you would impart the life of the Son of God into our very bodies, into these bodies made in your image, into our digestive system, through our mouth, down our throat. I pray that uh, these bodies you have made would be given some kind of new um, spiritual life that affects our bodily life as we partake in these elements. Uh, we do not know what's going on here, Lord. There are things way, way beyond us. The third heavens are breaking in here. Um, but we know that, uh, we do know that our death is taken away. You've taken our death and you've given us life in the middle of death. And we praise you for that. Let us feel it.
We love these rascals. <laughs>